welcome to the Data Democracy. Presented by renowned O'Reilly author Ole Olsen Banyu. Empowered by Xenia. Make your data accessible and discoverable by anyone, anywhere, at any time. Hi everybody. You're listening to The Data Democracy, and I'm your host, Ole Olesen Banyu, Chief Evangelist in Senea, and the author of the Enterprise Data Catalog published by O'Reilly. In this podcast, we explore what an enterprise data democracy is with knowledgeable guests. Today's guest is John Gorman. John is the co-founder and CEO of Semantium. Semantium is a language-first knowledge graph platform, and it's founded on the idea that business language is key to enterprise-level data and information management. The core value of Symantium is standard identity, classification, and language equivalence techniques that guarantee immediate benefits and long-range return of investment. My takeaways from my conversation with John. First, a data leader takeaway. Make sure you hire the correct people when it comes to understanding the link between language and data, because it's connected. Second, a data democracy takeaway. From structured to unstructured data, when we search for data and language, we are in one big semantic universe that can be connected to look at it all more holistically. And a knowledge graph is really key in that. And a third, a personal takeaway. John is the kind of consultant that is down to earth and thinks a lot. A real brain fryer. Okay, so here comes my conversation with John. Hi, John. Hello. Oh, how Hi. are you? <laughs> I'm fine. And uh, I'm happy to have you on, John. For the listeners uh, of the podcast, can you share a little bit about your work experience, what you've uh, done in, uh, in your career, your background, so forth? Sure. Yeah. So um, my data career kind of start got out to a bit of a rocky start at the University of Calgary on a mainframe Honeywell machine. Um, but I'll skip that part because it was kind of uh, humbling, shall we say. So I worked in a university um, analytics department that was um, having some trouble. When, I, when they first hired me, uh, it was taking them four months to get their quarterly reports out, which is not great because they had to f- shuffle all kinds of uh, different technologies and they were juggling things. But uh, the president basically gave them a mandate that said, we have to improve that. So um, my real sort of deep dive into data with with the uh, the university was they had all of the, it was, it's actually interesting because way back then they have the same issues we have now. They have um, different sources of data from operational data to um, to instructors to facilities to all of those types of things and they wanted some better metrics and they wanted them as i said more quickly so what we what we were doing was we were extracting uh data using spss it's a statistical program because it was the basically the only tool that we had at the time this was really really pre-analytics uh, there was no business intelligence platforms per se so what we do is extract them roll them into reports and try to make sense of how the different uh, sources of data played with each other. So that was my first experience. We decided that the best approach was to classify data coming out of those applications and, and trying to get some some foundational structure underneath that we, so we could understand, for example, how facility utilization related to uh, student performance, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I, we 
we were very successful. Actually, we started to do some, some get some process in place where we could do the extractions, uh, make sense of the data, roll it into, at that time, we were just using Excel spreadsheets, you know, mm -hmm. the usual, and the usual suspects there. When we added financial information, it started the, the, the fog started to lift a little bit. And so we started to do longitudinal analysis on students from the time they applied to the university uh, course where um, their course, the courses they selected, the programs they were in, how long they, we could retain those students. And then finally, in that, in that phase of my career, we started to add, as I mentioned, the cost of putting a student through a program and the, and the offset revenue. So we, we did some, I think the, the upshot of that part of my career was we did the first um, activity-based costing longitudinal studies of students about how much it cost, how much revenue they brought in, um, retention, all those types of things. And we wound up identifying some dimensions of that analysis that came in handy sort of further along. And that was, you know, again, the usual business intelligence things like, you know, who, who was, uh, which students took which courses at which campus, that kind of thing. And it started to sort of sow the seeds because we were doing the analysis first it kind of started to sow the seeds that maybe there's a pattern here. So my next foray into data management was, was at the opposite end was what they call unstructured content. And I worked for Documentum in the Bay Area in San Francisco. Yeah. So yeah. one of the things there, it's content management at that time. And I think it's still the same architecture now. And that was, I date myself here, 25 years ago. <laughs> the architecture basically is a file, file store sitting on top of an Oracle database. Yeah. The, the tricky, the challenge there was trying to find documents after they'd been put into the, into the document management system. And we, for that, we relied on metadata. So now I'm back to this sort of the structured data attaching to the documents. And that's where, when I was working in Houston for the, for Documentum, that was kind of my big sort of um, epiphany moment where I realized that the dimensions of the analytics were exactly the same dimensions that people wanted to search for documents. Mm -hmm. So they mm -hmm. wanted to search for uh, for people documents, for example, resumes. They wanted to search for authors of documents. They wanted to search for operational documents like contracts, um, agreements, those types of things. And to your point in one of your articles, we realized that not only were the dimensions the same, but the search interface was too complex. So mm. we wanted to make it very simple. Wow, and cool. so one of the things that we started to understand was the language of every business that we touched was different but the patterns of language were the same so when i came back to calgary and started doing some consulting work uh the documentum uh thing extended into a contract with the company in texas but when that was done uh in early 2000s i started to work on those patterns a big part of the bmc project was what um what i call the multiple of multiples so they had multiple platforms, multiple targets for technology. They had multiple versions, multiple languages. They, in their, it was a, I should have put uh, preface this a little bit. It was a technical documentation project. Mm -hmm. So this is all the documentation for all of their projects online, printed, and different. So they had multiple formats, multiple languages, multiple platforms. And then they had this really tricky problem of tracking versions. So they not only had to track, BMC software does optimization for things like Oracle, Sybase, um, pretty much any technology you can imagine. But the, tech, the, the technical documentation part was uh, we also had to track versions of the product they were aiming at. So Oracle version 10, version 11, version 12, and all of the platforms oh. or all of the, the, 
all the software that sort of um, supported and the technical documentation that supported that. So we had um, help topics like, you know, inline help topics, online help documents, printed documents. They all had to be aligned. And so we wound up with this component kind of idea. And that to to the point about different verticals using different language but the same patterns. So once you start to see the patterns developing, now things start to calm down. Now you've got some you've got some foundational things you can pin technical documentation to because the rules are always the same. Mm-hmm. So out of that exercise was the Q6 classification was was born. And it's an old idea. It goes all the way back to Rudyard Kipling. You know, the oh. who, what, when, where, why, and how of business. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. when I started working with it, I said, well, these, that's six categories is pretty bulky for, not bulky, the, the buckets are too big. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I split the buckets into 19. And I've got that on my on the web, and I, pay, I post that quite a bit. But the 19 buckets are based on Rudyard Kipling's uh, Six on a Serving Men. So oh, a simple idea, okay. easy, really, really easy to teach. The business really likes it. The technology kind of took a while to catch up. So when Knowledge Graph started to come on the scene, I finally had a way of expressing all of these different ways of mind mapping business language to metadata to instance data that's uh that's quite a story and i <laughs> i want to try to pitch some of my questions that i that i prepared i think uh, also for the listeners that will be a great help because that is a sense that you have been doing a lot of thinking while working and i i i, I love that i love that yeah. i i do that myself and I, I don't know, you said you dated yourself. Either you're younger than you believe, or I'm, I'm, I may be <laughs> older than I, uh, than I think of. But yeah. I can, I can, I can ba- basically, I can both remember SPSS and Documentum. So uh, there you go. So don't, yeah. worry, don't worry about it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so diving into knowledge graphs, you have this very special view of watching knowledge graphs. Basically, the question I prepared is, what are the benefits of a knowledge graph in terms of organizing and searching data? And that question is perhaps a little too broad in the sense mm. you approach knowledge graphs because you have this kind of reverse or loop view of knowledge graphs. Can you expand on that? Yeah. So when you the the, the approach that was that we were developing or I was developing and stuff, it turns out you have to get very very granular about it. And when I first started using this. Um, this technique for classification. They say, we can't just classify documents. We can't just classify databases and that kind of thing. It's also, go, it all goes back to the very granular, um, well, business language. So mm-hmm. when I first started doing that, people said, well, no, no one's going to do that. It's way too granular. It's going to be like explosively, um, you're going to wind up with, what's what's the phrase, Cartesian products. Everything's going to be, it's going to be huge and unmanageable, right? Mm-hmm. But when it turns out when you, and we've done a lot of, like you say, we constantly sort of, um, and I say we, I'm, I'm in sort of the, my, my partners and I, when we, when we work on these kinds of models, um, the, the, the real value takes place, what we call upstream of data. And I think this, um, the democratization of data, that the, the writing the book that you've been writing and the, the posts that you make, this, this is right in your wheelhouse because the classification and the connections that we use in graphs and the properties we use in graphs are all really, really highly constrained. So it doesn't mm-hmm. matter which granular piece of, of uh, information that you're, that you're looking at. Uh, it could be a, 
what you know is the old canard about customer. Customer is just a word. It, if you talk to DBAs about customers, they immediately start thinking about tables and relationships and, and entity relationship diagrams and all that. So I think what, what knowledge graphs finally gave us was an ability to express these very, very highly granular um, concepts and metadata values and instance values in a way, first of all, that's, that's visible, which I think is a huge part of democratization of data. Yeah, um, it's under, Yeah, it's understandable because one of the things we found when I was working with the health authority here was uh, the clinicians and the, the, the people that were, doing, that were on the ground really, really liked to see the language of their business in a graph because it's, it's visual right? It's, it's uh, navigable, it's searchable, all that kind. So knowledge graphs really gave us an, another leg up. But the classification part that I was talking about allows you to do sort of business, like BI kind of operations on a knowledge graph because it's faceted. And that's a term that I've used quite a bit. So the who, what, when, where, why are facets of information. That's six facets. If you think, imagine a cube, Right, you can access a graph, a knowledge graph in Symantium from any angle you want. So if you're looking for a person, you can filter on persons, or you can filter in and filter out. So you can essentially slice and dice a knowledge graph. Yeah. And so all of the the rules about observability and composability all based on natural language. The really interesting part in the last well year or so is this thing called what is it? ChatGPT LLM sort of came on the on the scene. I haven't and heard of that at all. No, I didn't think so. Well, let me tell you a little bit about no. So one of the really interesting things about that, I was reading, and I think I posted this on uh, LinkedIn, Stephen Wolfram uh, early on in the game posted a really, really good article about how, uh, no, um, how LLMs are structured, how they work. And then in, in the <laughs> middle of the article, he, he sort of said, well, but nobody knows why it works. It just seems to work. Like it's, then that's the, that's a very attractive part of it. But what it does for us is to say LLMs use tokens, some of them not even words, like ING is a, is a token, right? Mm -hmm. But when you, use, when you think about a knowledge graph with facets and, and the power of the knowledge graph being visible and being extensible everywhere, when you think about putting the semantics of knowledge graphs on a solid foundation, mm -hmm. now all of the challenges, a lot of the challenges with LLMs start to disappear because you can keep going back to the foundation and say, well, O'Gorman says con customer is a role, full stop. Mm -hmm. How you define customer in your particular organization, okay, it, it, matters. it matters to the organization, obviously, but it has nothing to do with structure, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? It just give me a word, define it. Okay, we can pin that down and we can move on. And some people won't like the definition, but we're not there to have these huge bun fights about whether we get it exactly right. But the, the, the 19 categories work for every organization I've worked with. I've worked in seven different verticals. I haven't found wow. facet number 20 yet. So it has oh, some wow. legs. And it also has when we said, okay, what, happened, what would happen if we took the, the principles of classification, those 19 buckets, and applied them to edges? Mm -hmm. Right? So the edges, our edges are all, there's only six of them that you can use to build a, a, for example, a conceptual model. And it's highly constrained. It basically says, this is what we need to know at a minimum. The complexity, if you want to build more complexity on the foundation or on the knowledge graph that's unique to your company, 
you go right ahead. But the rule is you have to tie everything back to the foundation. So it's saying like the, the, the symbol one is a number. It could be an identifier or whatever, but you have to tell me what it is first. And then you can use it in a sentence. It's all based on how language is formed, how language is used. It doesn't matter if you're if you're speaking Danish or English. The patterns might be slightly the same in terms of syntax, but components, the elements, the the really granular bits, you treat them all the same. So I just give you a quick example of of how we've used this, like the the metaphors that come out of this. Mm -hmm. The food supply chain, everything has a universal product code. So if you go into a grocery store, everything has a, a code. And the codes were originally used to uh, help customers get through the checkouts quicker. But then people began to realize that there's a slice and dice. There's business intelligence built into the codes that you can leverage for saying just-in-time delivery. There's all those downstream benefits. The UPC, the, the barcode itself, is standardized to a certain extent. There's always exceptions. I think Europe uses a slightly different one than North America, but the principles are the same. Yeah, yeah. So, to you, I really liked your article about making search for data as simple as possible. Just give me a search bar, mm -hmm. one search bar, type something in and see, and it basically you can see, finally, sort of, it's transparent. So our, our premise, to your point, your question earlier, was if you can use business language to connect to metadata and connect to instance data and then to, like, to data structures, mm -hmm. the business adoption on that is very, very quick because they say, well, I can type in anything. So yeah, go for it. You know, yeah. type in a location, type in a, a person, type in anything. And then the knowledge graph will show you what that node, that very granular node is connected to semantically. So yeah. And then when you get down to data, so this is, think of it like, a, uh, I'm rambling a little bit, but hopefully I'm answering <laughs> your question. Think of it like a ramp. So the ramp, yeah. the ramp to, to Data doc democratization, I think, runs through a business uh, glossary. Mm -hmm. So I don't okay. mind. I might not know exactly what data I'm looking for, but I can go back to the business glossary and see what it's, see what my my concept that I'm looking for is connected to structurally. Exactly. So there you, yeah. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, but because because I've been looking at your diagrams, uh, reading your articles, and mm -hmm. I see this. This enormous chain of um, not necessarily events, but causality from yeah. language and concepts that are disambiguated into data and back to language again. And yeah. I think I think that way of using technology, extracting stuff from unstructured data, applying it to data to get back to unstructured data. Can you share a bit of more about that approach. I think it's very unique and you really have to get your head around it to understand what's the idea here. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's that's uh that's something we've been working on quite a bit because it's so easy to dive into the into the weeds on this stuff. Yeah. But basically the unstructured part came with the um with the the Houston with the BMC engagement. So that's where mm -hmm. the, the nickel started to drop is that I can write a technical topic right? That uses words that people will recognize in the field, in the discipline they're working in. Or typically what was happening was, as you say, the other way around, people would write a document without any kind of concern about the language that they're using. Technical writing is very disciplined. You have to be for a whole bunch of different reasons. I won't go into here, but so the, the part that that whole loop part 
was that if the terms are already defined in a business glossary and we we're creating topics or documents, right? We're already we're using and reusing to the fair principles. We're reusing the language that's in the glossary to create a document. Mm -hmm. If we if we wanted to do it the other way, there's actually three ways. But if we want to do the other way, we have documents already written. If we deconstruct them and put those into a business glossary, right now we have and we define those, and or identify those or describe those. Now we're starting to build a, a glossary from unstructured documents. The third way, and the third thing that's important is, if you, the end to end part is if we have a business glossary and we're creating content, we can attach the business glossary, which are faceted, as metadata to the document. See, for mm -hmm. me, it's just it's just um, how you use the, the language of the business. You can use it as, a, as to create content. You can use it as metadata values, but it's always it's always consistent with the foundation of this of business language first. The thing is, too, is what I think what gets confusing a little bit is you have so-called legacy data mm -hmm. and we treat that slightly differently because we, we don't have the luxury of trying to deconstruct everything, but we treat legacy data slightly differently. Mm -hmm. But if you're doing a greenfield development application or whatever, the process is uh, find out what the business language is, create a glossary, find out what they need to know about that, those entities, if you will, right, to, to use a broadly mm -hmm. sort of whatever, find out what they want to know about those entities. And then store that, and and then basically go out and, and talk about how you want to use that data for analytics in the context of so-called unstructured content. I and I'm using I'm using air quotes there. Mm -hmm. Structure content has a structure. It's just that it's not very well organized. So in technical documentation, it has to be extremely well organized because they reuse topics. And the reason they reuse them is because for consistency of messaging. But the reason mm -hmm. they apply this discipline to the topics is because translation used to be very expensive. It's kind of like um, space when I was growing up. Um, storage space was very expensive. So you typically took a lot of shortcuts so you didn't have to store a lot of stuff. Those yeah. two constraints are basically gone now. So the loops you're talking about can go in multiple directions. But it's all, again, it's all tied to the foundation of Language has a certain patterns of syntax. Language has certain patterns of classification. And language has, in order to reuse things, you have to identify them. So you had a question on your list about what does disambiguation mean? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I did a, pre I yeah, I did a presentation. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> disambiguation essentially means that rather than just using indexing, you actually take a term like manufacturing and split it apart. So manufacturing has can be a noun, right? Can be said this is a manufacturing sector se, uh, sector of a of a a country like Denmark, mm -hmm. right? Manufacturing is also an activity; it's also a verb. So disambiguation means when Ola says manufacturing, we need to know foundationally whether he's referring to the noun or the verb, and we need to make both of those available in the glossary. Yeah. Yeah. Because as we know, language, it doesn't matter which language you're speaking, Danish, Chinese, English, German, whatever, um, those translations depend on on the on that separation of those two words um, downstream. 
And it's also really interesting too, because when you're when you're having conversations, you say, "Well, are you referring to manufacturing in the, in the, as a noun or a verb?" And once you do that, everything else goes away. There's better examples in manufacturing because some words like um, table, for example, mm-hmm. like you know, table you can you can define or describe as a four legged thing that hold, that has a platform that holds things up off the floor. Yeah, that's fine. But if you're in the context of, with a DBA and saying table, that's a whole different meaning. Yeah. But we have these when we have these conversations, and you know that we've had we've and I've had them on LinkedIn recently, where you're t- you're talking back and forth, and you're arguing different points, and then you go, "Oh, you're not talking about table in the same sense I'm talking about it." Oh, yeah, yeah. okay, that makes everything much much more understandable. So, yeah, for example, definitely. in a search, in in uh, Semantium search, and to your point about finding data, you can enter a term like table and it'll give you five or six different options and say pick this pick which which one of these five options you want to go you want to explore more and then the other four options disappear yeah. which is kind of cool because now you're on a a knowledge graph track that says everything I'm going to talk about everything I'm going to find in this track is related to a DBA table not not a restaurant table <laughs> flight is another good one like the, there's lots of conversations about how different Different people in an airline industry def- define the word flight. Oh, well, if yeah. they all have leg- legitimate uses, then why not add them to the glossary? Say, well, flight is to an engineer means the time that the wheels leave the ground. Flight to a to a customer means an entirely different thing. So hey, so let's I, disambiguate yeah. them and rec- and say okay. So and it it sounds like overkill, but tokens do exactly the same thing in an LLM, but they do it in a in a much different way it's embeddings do that yeah no no no. to me this is not overkill at all i think um i have two questions uh, one that i prepared and, and then one that i that i just feel like asking like just like that because throughout my uh, career i've had this constant clash with master data mm. and it's not that i don't respect master data i understand what what master data does but the way you're describing the multitude the semantical multitude of 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 meanings for every single word out there flight table uh, manufacturing had have you had these very have you encountered these very categorical pockets of resistance to what you do from a from a master data perspective or have you always like manage to get those people on the, on your team because basically they're doing something very very important. It's yep. not that I am challenging master data at all, but mm-hmm. it's just you have to really scope it because master data creeps out of its necessary yeah. task. Yeah, I think in our contract we agreed not to uh, before this interview not to talk about master data. So, but I will. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. So okay. one of the one of the I think one of the things that there's a a few things to unpack there, but one of the things I think data management folks do is they they slice things into different buckets that mm-hmm. sometimes the business doesn't understand. Right. Yeah. So master data, reference data, transactional data, they're going, why? Like I just doing my job. I like you say, I have a job. In terms of so in ter- answer your question about resistance, absolutely. And when I first started doing this kind of stuff, it was basically the stick approach. We have to have one definition for flight, full stop. We're not doing any other. So everybody in a room, uh, we're going to get the engineers to agree with the consumers that what the word flight means. <laughs> and 
as you it's might impossible. imagine. <laughs> no, it's and it, I think um, if you're a cynical person, a consultant would love that kind of gig. You spend hours yeah. and weeks and months and say we still haven't figured it out, but I'm billing you 110 dollars an hour. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. What came out of that was all the bruises, cuts and bruises and stuff came out of that one as well. Is there a way that we can accommodate those differences? Absolutely. And they typically happen with concepts more than typical definition of master. Like if uh, person data, customer data, things that you can make real, like Eiffel Tower is a, is a, is a thing. We, can, we, can, might, we might be able to put that in a master or say uh, BMC Software Inc. Is a, needs to be mastered. Scott Taylor has a, you know, has a great um, demonstration about how mastering data gets really complicated. Like Seven mm-hmm. Eleven, he's got a he's got a great graphic that shows something like thirty six different spellings of that word. So it obviously it needs to be mastered. <laughs> but here's the thing: so there's a couple of things. One is that master data is available on the web. Like you can you can see what Seven Eleven prefers their store to be called, their company to be called. Just use that. Mm-hmm. But when when you have different when you have variations of a master data element, like Seven Eleven or BMC software, is it BMC software, comma, Inc. period, that computers have all kinds of trouble with. People don't because BMC Inc., right? BMC software, it's all the same. So what Semantium does, and this this came from uh, the need to connect um, like codes and identifiers. What we do is we create a, a, a semantic equivalence. So in a graph view, you would have the... We we don't typically don't use preferred, but we have uh, let's say a company agrees that BMC Software Inc is the one we got on the net from uh, Standard and Poor's, and then we have all of these variations around it. So we create semantic equivalence to the variance, and use the cent- one in the center as the master. Simple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I mean, address data is another master data um, category bucket, right? Uh, in my day, it was, again, it was, uh, my day, I didn't think I'd ever use that phrase. But anyway, um, it's, you you had to do some hard wiring and hard mapping and things like that. Now you can just go, you can type a, an address into Google and it'll tell you exact if that address exists. And it'll give you the, you know, the canonical, under, like the canonical spelling exactly right. Mm-hmm. And you use that. Yeah, so there's yeah, a couple yeah. of things. I totally agree with you on the master side because it does get a little creepy. Use a Halloween mm-hmm. metaphor. But also, mm-hmm. there's no need to 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 spend a ton of time trying to figure out how to rectify all of those different understandings or spellings of it. You can just create. Mm-hmm. And again, it's all about accessibility. It's all about transparency. So if if BMC software or 7-Eleven is spelled a bunch of different ways and you want your, your uh, employer users to see that, you can do that because they all connect to the they all connect to the hub of that. A lot of our stuff is hub and spoke, even really, really tiny ones. Mm-hmm. So the 7-Eleven, um, the right spelling of that phrase or BMC software sits in the middle and everything is equivalent to it. Every mm-hmm. other variant of that is equivalent. Thank you for being a supporter here. I've, <laughs> okay. I've met quite a lot of resistance, but I've also met master data people where I, where we really found common ground, right? And it's right. definitely possible to get there, but but both sides need to soften up a bit yeah, i've been agreed. very anti-master data in my days anyway i want to uh, to ask you the final question here in a semantic perspective 
what would you to what degree is there a difference between a data and language at large if you can give that kind of answer if it is if it's possible right the first thing that came to mind when i read that question was um and i heard it again today was stru uh, structure so yeah. the, our premise is that you can't create data without language. It has it's a prerequisite, and and the feedback and you talk about pushback and resistance that I get was like, well, you don't you don't understand. What about IoT stuff? That's data, right? What about what about what about? And I said, well, okay, but if you're using human symbols to communicate with a computer, which translates everything into ones and zeros, language first. And so I think the relationship between language and data there is a difference but it's mostly in, in structural complexity and structural, maybe that's the wrong word to use, Ole, but yeah, it's if, if language is made granular enough in the business, which is something that business actually appreciates because business users don't necessarily want to start with data because it, it fries their minds. But when you can show them, <laughs> when you can show them how a concept like product or a concept like customer or product like flight, for example, mm -hmm. connects to metadata, because you can translate metadata too, right? Like, if somebody is using um, FLT-NUM and someone else is, some other application is using um, flight-ID or flight, you know, or flight-CODE, mm -hmm. those two are equivalent. So the, the language part of it is the feedstock. It's the upstream raw materials that makes data. So uh, I'll leave you with a, a metaphor. There's only 90 usable elements in the periodic table. There's an infinite number of combinations of those that we, some of which we haven't found yet, that can create anything in the in the known universe because that's how that's how chemistry works with with products, for example. But there are rules about how those things are combined. Like you can't just take a, a molecule of magnesium and connect it to a molecule of I don't know xenium, selenium. They don't work together. So there's so language is the raw materials, the elemental bits. Data is the uh, the assemblies, the components, the molecules, if you will. And our premise is that whenever you use a molecule, whenever you use an element, it has its identity and class and equivalence has to track all the way out to molecules and back again. To your point earlier about content. John, I thank you for for, for your <laughs> for your deep deep answers. You yeah. definitely also managed to fry uh, my brain a little bit, uh, <laughs> but I but I uh, I loved it, and uh, I look forward to exchange views uh, on LinkedIn and and hopefully also in the physical world in the future. Thank you, right. thank you, John, for being on. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.